Hello, welcome to episode two of One at a Time. During this episode titled The Negotiation, you'll be gaining more insight into the dynamic of an intervention between Dr. Jimenez and the different gang sets he meets with when he's fighting to release a child. From the process of interventions to how he defends himself when tensions escalate, in this episode, Dr. Jimenez shares specific details and stories about his 30 years of experience as a gang interventionist. Before getting to my interview with Dr. Jimenez, I want to once more share the warning that some of the content discussed in this episode may be considered disturbing or triggering. In the previous episode, you shared about your remarkable educational training. How else did you prepare for the role of a gang interventionist apart from your education and personal experience in a gang? This is going to be, this is going to sound really crazy. And I know that people that are listening to this are going to be like, really? I had a very heavy spiritual relationship with God. Even through my, my trials and my tribulations and everything else that I was doing, all this, all this all this dirt, like I like to call it, that I was doing, I still had a respect and a fear for God. So I could say it now when people tell me, Richie, but you're doing this this dangerous work. Aren't you afraid of getting killed? I said, listen, I'm not afraid of the one that could kill the body. I'm afraid of the one that could kill the body and the soul. So basically my, my foundation in faith, you know, how Jesus called us to, uh, you know, go out there and be fishes of men. And I add women. Because remember, people that wrote the Bible were men, so they always just said men. But I say, be out there faces of men and women to try to help. So that that was one of the things that really kept the glue together. Because I'll be honest with you, over the last 30 years, there were times that I became so angry that, you know, I wanted to give up. But then one of these children that I helped would send me a letter, a text, an email, or something telling me how good they were doing and thanking me. And I'm saying, you know, I don't mean any thanks because all I did was show love, right? All I did was become that parent to one of these kids that they didn't have with the absentee fathers, right? Because their fathers were where? In prison. Because their father was where? Either hooked on drugs or something like that. So to me, I don't need the thanks. The way I get thanked is by seeing them succeeding. And every time I felt like giving up, every time I felt frustrated, every time I felt broken, for some reason, if you want to call him God or you want to call him the source or you want to call him Muhammad, whatever it is, whatever faith you believe in, there was always a foundation where one of these kids will reach out and ignite that fire again. What is the process of an intervention? A- an intervention. Now, remember, for every set, and what I mean by set is like, you know, MS-13, the Latin King, the Blood, the Crips, every set has a different set of rules, Right. So basically, an intervention is somebody's going to reach out to me, whether it's a parent, a friend, a teacher, the child himself, where they want to get out. In the street, we have this saying that says, real recognizes real. All education goes down the toilet. All of that goes down the toilet. And I speak to them so they understand, right? They understand my language. The reason how I'm speaking right now is basically almost the same way that I'll speak to them with this passion. And we'll sit there and we'll negotiate, believe it or not. That's the most dangerous part of the whole intervention is when you're sitting there negotiating. Because say, for instance, you want to get out of a a set, right? You want to get out of, let's just say, the Crips. And you're making them $1,000 a week. My job is 
to intervene and try to help you get out without you having to pay restitution. Restitution is having to sleep your way out, having your parents pay them on this enormous sum of money. They'll ask for $15,000, $20,000. What parent has that lying around in their home? Or they'll have your parents try to work, you know, to pay off that debt, right? So that negotiation can last days. It can last hours. I've had very sticky situations where I've had weapons pulled out on me. I've had, you know, uh, people try to physically assault me. I, I, you name it, it's been there. But my persistence is what kept that negotiation going. It's like you're going to buy a car and you're negotiating the price, right? They'll tell you, hey, it's $25,000, but you're trying to negotiate that price. This is more, this for me is more special because these are lies. These are children's lies, right? Um, and uh, so we just go in there, we sit there, and we negotiate. Sometimes the child is left alone and told that they don't have to pay any restitution. I thank God for those days. But there are times that they have to pay restitution. And instead of having the parent pay that cash amount, what I do is I do it for the family. And then if I feel professionally, I feel that the child and the family is still in danger, well, I help them leave. You know, I help them move. I give them money for them to move. And I, and I also buy them airplane tickets or train, whatever they feel comfortable with in order for them to, you know, move on and start a new life somewhere else. What would make someone go from being dedicated to their gang to calling their family to let them know they no longer want to be a part of that gang? When it gets to that point, it's because they're scared that they're going to die. They've made a mistake. They've lost a package. See, because, for instance, these, these uh, I call them chicken hawks. They'll give a 13-year-old, say, a kilo of cocaine. If the kid gets stopped by the police and the police takes away the kilo of cocaine, do you know that the parents or that child still have to pay that money for that cocaine? So now where is the family going to get $45,000, right? So now the kid is afraid. Now the kid is like, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to go. And that's when they reach out to me. When they reach out to me, they're at the bottom of the barrel. When they reach out to me, they're at their, their wits end. They don't know what else to do. So no one reaches out to you because they have a change of heart? Some have. But more than, more, more than likely is that they're afraid of something. Or they're being told to do something and they don't want to do it. Once I get to them, and after I've removed them from the organization, the change of heart comes when I'm giving them counseling over the phone, when I'm talking to them, when, when we're sending emails and we're sending texts. That's when that change of heart comes. You mentioned that an intervention begins with um, someone reaching out to you. How do you pick which young adult you're going to help next? Wow. You know, that's, that's what I struggle with, and that's what I lose sleep about daily. I don't have enough time in the day to reach out to everybody. So that's where I, I struggle the most. I'll be honest with you. That's where I, I, I lose the most sleep because, you know, God forbid that I didn't, you know, reach out to that person fast enough and they end up dying or end up going to jail. Then I have that remorse, you know, in my head. I try to reach out to everybody who reaches out to me, whether it's the day, the day of, or the day after, I will immediately reach out because I know time is of essence. This world revolves, you know, we have 24 hours in a day, but anything can happen any second, right? So I try to reach out to them immediately. You know, there are times that it becomes overwhelming. I have five, six, seven mothers at one time crying out and saying, I need to help their babies. And, 
things like that. So you can understand where my, you know, anxiety and everything comes in because I, I need, I wish there were more hours in the day. Have you ever experienced freeing someone from their gang affiliation only for them to join the group again? What was that like? Oh, that's the most painful thing I've ever experienced because I invest time, I invest my heart and my money, right? <laughs> so to get this, this individual out, to then find out, mother calling me crying again, saying he's back in again or she's back in again. So I would stay out of, you know, the number of children that maybe that's happened maybe like six, seven times mm. in the last 30 years. I still remember their names vividly. I still remember what they look like. And does it hurt? Absolutely. Do I still feel that pain? Absolutely. Because after them going back, I tried reaching out and I was never able to reach out to those. So that that's, that's where the pain comes in. Because even if they go back, I'm like one of those parents, you know how your parents, no matter what you do, they'll forgive, right? So I would have forgiven my, like I call them my kids, and I would have went back to trying to help them again. Even though I know that the restitution would have been higher now, right? Because now this is the second time that they, they go in. Have you noticed a pattern between those who return to their gang? Yeah, honestly, what it is is that these are people that were addicted to the life, not life, right? They were addicted to the fast money. They were addicted to the fast sex. They were addicted to the fast drugs. They were missing all the fun that they were having. In the street, it's called going straight, right? Um, you know, they, they, they don't like the straight life. They don't like, you know, going to a nine to five. They don't like going to school. They'd rather be out there in three or four hours, make $2,000, go home, get high, and do this, repeat the same action again. You know, it's like the meaning of insanity. That, that you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result is not going to happen. Can you describe a situation in which you felt the need for law enforcement support during an intervention, if that's ever happened to you? Can I be honest with you? No. Because if I ever called law enforcement to help me, all my credibility, everything I've ever worked for with this, with this type of mission and vision would go down the toilet because then I would be known as an op or a rat. So never. Yeah, I never, I never... There were situations where I thought that it was going to be my last moment on earth. Situations when I thought, yeah, oh yeah, this guy is really going to kill me. Especially when drugs were involved. While we're there sitting in a meeting, they're actively using cocaine. And, and we know how they get paranoid with cocaine. And So yeah, it, it, there were times that it became hairy, but never did I say I want to call the police because then everything will go down the toilet. So how do you defend yourself? How do you navigate situations that make you feel like your life is at risk? One of the things that I've always had, even as a kid, was a gift for gab. You know what that means? That's an old school terminology. In other words, I knew how to talk. I could talk my way out of a paper bag, a cement block. So I just start talking to them to ease them down. And when it, while everybody's getting all agitated and screaming, my voice is getting lower and lower. What are some of the things you would say to them? Well, honestly, you want me to tell you, this is over the airways. I don't know if I could use that language, but I would say, listen, motherfucker, if you don't trust me, then pull the trigger. You know, do what you got to do. But if not, I'm sitting here talking business with you, so let's talk business. But if you don't trust me, then pull the fucking trigger. And of course, they would threaten, I'm going to pull the trigger, and I, would, and I would keep on softly, then pull the trigger. And that would ease things down, believe it or not. It seems like something out of a movie. There have been so many situations like that that it's been, you know, it, it's ridiculous. They want to show their bravado. They're looking at me. 
I'm only you know, five, seven and a half, this little short little guy coming up to these guys. And they're like, you know, how does this guy have the gojuns or the cojones to come here to talk to us by himself sometimes or with two other people, but still always like, who does this guy think he is? And my, my, my words have always been what have a safety or a higher power, let's just say that. Well, I can understand now why you can't depend on law enforcement to defend you. It makes sense that because of the nature of your interactions with them, they wouldn't trust you with police with you. Yeah, that like situations like that, I was always, I had a gift of gab. Um, I never walked in carrying a weapon, never have. The only weapon I ever carried into one of these meetings was a Bible, you know, in my book bag. What is your follow-up system after an intervention is successfully completed? Who are you checking in with? The family, the gang? You named it, everyone. Everyone. And when when they're relocated, you know, I have a, a, a line, a phone line, where they can call and leave me texts, messages, emails. So that's how it works. But I follow up with everybody. And even, you know, when the gang releases a child, I continuously go back to them to thank them, right? To show that respect, to pay that respect. Listen, thank you. Thank you for working with me, right? Because they notice that I'm not just the type of person that goes in there, like a lot of these politicians that they'll say, I'm going into this community because I want to help. And here the government gives them millions of dollars and all they do is put one park bench. And the rest of the money, where does it go? Nobody ever realizes it. So that's not me. I go back and I, and I talk to them and, and they see that I, I generally care about them. I have a story. Um, just a couple of weeks ago at, in Bedside, Brooklyn, there was a, two siblings, a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old who were um, actually prostituting themselves because their father owed this set money for drugs. And what he did was he gave their daughters to these savages. As I'm talking to them, this 12-year-old kid, you know, starts cursing them and telling me to get the F out of here and who the F are you? And so I look at him at first, the, the hoodie you comes out. And I was like, yo, shorty, who are you talking to like that? But then I caught myself and I said, brother, why are you talking to me like that one? I'm just here to help you. And this 12-year-old baby who you could think would just be playing with cars or or playing on a swing or playing on the monkey bars, lifted up his shirt and showed me a nine millimeter Beretta with an extended clip. And he said, this is the only thing that helps me. This is why I have the passion because these older guys are using these children younger and younger through their dirt. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I go back and I continuously speak to them. That's why I still go back to those neighborhoods where people think I'm crazy for going to. You know, let me be the crazy one. But if I could save one, I've saved a lot. Can you talk a little bit more about how you maintain contact with the young adults that you release from their gang affiliation? Yeah, I keep close with them through social media, through Facebook, um, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, um, email, phone calls, through other people, through letters. A lot of them, like if they were scared and they were afraid, they really just keep in contact with me through letters. And they create like fake social media, like, you know, names. So, and they'll tell me, like, they'll write me a letter and say, oh, I'm going to be Buddy 232 or whatever the hell. And then I'm going to, okay, I know. So, and they request me on certain, you know, uh, social media outlets. I know it's them and we keep in contact with there. Can you tell me about an intervention experience that really impacted you? I think the, I think the one that I shared, the 13 and 14 year old babies, yeah, that their father actually gave them to the drug dealers to pay off his drug debt. That one is the one. And that also, I didn't tell you guys, that intervention ended up with like the city 
coming in and uh, actually removing the girls from the home. And, and that wasn't on, on my behalf. I didn't make that call. Uh, but I guess, thank God, someone picked up the phone and called them. So that's good news. Those girls are away from that savage. How important is it for you that gang leaders guarantee that there will be no retaliation against any of the young adults you help release or their families? That's 100%. I have to be, I have to be assured. How often have you had to support families with relocations? Can I be honest with you? Too many times that I, I don't remember the number. It's been, it's been that many. Over the last 30 years, it's been that many. And now it's increasing more because we have this, this new gang that's, that's becoming like a plague here in New York City. I'm pretty sure you've heard about them, the MS-13. That, that organization, they will smile in my face. They will tell me, yeah, the child is free. They can go and then they're threatening the family to kill them, threatening the family over in Honduras or San Salvador or wherever the family's from. So it, it's, becoming, it's becoming more frequent now. What do you think makes them want to kill? If they're going in because they don't have that father figure, if maybe they're struggling so they need money, where does the incentive to kill come from? Oh, anger, um, loneliness. See, I think back when I was their age and I was out there in the street and I had such anger that I wanted the world to pay for what I was feeling. So I wanted the world to feel my anger and my hate. Right? And that's where it comes from. It comes from, you know, single-parent homes. And not everybody, because there are people that, you know, survive single-parent homes that didn't join gangs, right? These are people that either want to be, feel protected. Either they want to make money. They want to feel like they have a family. So they will do anything to prove to their set that they're, like, I don't know if you ever heard what they say in the street, that they're valid. In other words, you know, like, yeah, you know, I, I'll do it. And the thing is that the younger they are, the less they fear. Because they know, say I commit a murder at 13, I'll be out by the time I'm 18 years old. Mm -hmm. Right? I'll be in juvenile, you know, detention centers or juvenile group homes upstate, but eventually they're going to let me go. Or what's the most they could keep me to? I'm 21 years old and then I'm back outside and I'm, I'm a savage now. Now I'm angry because you took away my freedom. And that's, that, that's the frame of thought. Can you share with us about your first intervention experience? Oh, I remember that like yesterday. We were talking about almost 30 years ago. There was a, a war going on in an area in Washington Heights. There were two rival gangs that were fighting for the turf. And one of the kids that was in a baseball league where I was a commissioner at was involved in it. And he called me one day at like 3.30 in the morning crying because he was scared for his life. The other faction had broken down his mother's door. We're threatening her with like weapons, machetes, and and uh, a gun, and telling him, you know, where is your son? So I jumped into action immediately. You know, I went out there and I met with both of the heads of both the factions. It was ugly. I remember distinctly it was 17 hours of going back and forth with them. The child was released, right? I had to pay $1,250 to each of the individuals, plus his plane ticket to go live with his father. That was the very first one, and that ignited my movement. I said, when I saw success there, right, when I saw that they that the real recognized the real 30-some odd years ago, I said, you know what, this is what I'm going to continue do, to do for the rest of my life until that day I take my last breath. 
Can you share about an intervention experience that you felt unprepared for? Wow. I guess that would be early on in my career um, where, you know, I still had that street mentality. And during one of the interventions, one of the individuals ended up spitting in my face and, and we became physical, right? Um, anybody knows that that's like the ultimate disrespect. It's either spitting you in your face or smacking you. People get killed for that. And I remember losing my temper um, and we got physical, really physical. Um, and, you know, we had to be separated. And, and the guy was saying, you see, MFO, you're fake. You know, you're fake. You ain't about change, bro. You're the same person, man. You're the same person like me. And I had to take a step back there and, and really refocus and think because he was right. At that moment, when that happened, I should have just wiped it off my face, told them, oh, you feel better now after doing that? And let's keep on talking about this kid's life. Is that something you'd be able to do now? Allow someone to spit on your face and continue with the intervention? Oh, after that, it's happened. Oh, it's happened many times. You know, and you know who does it the most, which is the funny thing? Latino organizations or sets. Because they know that that's like the highest rate, that's the highest disrespect that you could do to any man or woman. And I earned their respect because that was the test. That was the test to see if I was giving them testimonies or testimonies. Now, if you want me to tell you, is it the hardest thing to do? Absolutely. Do I want to jump over that table and grab him by his throat? Absolutely. Do I want to punch them right in the mouth? Absolutely. But I'm there for a mission, right? And yeah, I control myself. And that comes to practice. Do I still get furious at it? Girl, after 30 years, absolutely. Imagine someone spitting you in your face. How would you react, right? Do you think every child deserves a second chance? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was either gonna be dead or in jail. I had no other outlet. I was either gonna die or I was gonna be in prison for the rest of my life. But somebody gave me a second chance. And because of that person giving me a second chance, that's when I decided that this has to be my mission in life. I have to give others a second chance. I don't believe that there's such a thing as a bad child. I just believe they're misunderstood and unloved. Do you do your gang intervention work in all five New York City boroughs? Yes, ma'am, in every single borough. And even out of state, I've been to Florida. I've done some work in Florida, to the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico. We're trying to make this thing global because this is not just a New York City problem. This is a global problem that we're facing now. How do you connect with the youth of your community and let them know about the ways you can serve and support them? And I go around like different like organizations, different churches and do motivational speaking. That's when I start planting seeds of change, right? And the blessing about that is because I, I don't give myself any credit. You know, I think that that those people were ready. They just needed somebody to point them in the right direction. And I believe that during those uh, those talks that I give or during those meetings that I give, a flashbulb goes off and then you see them coming to me at the end of those meetings and slipping me notes or giving me their number and saying, I need your help, call me. And that's how that works. I, I do encourage when I go out into the neighborhoods and things like that and I talk to those young adults, I'm like, don't you guys want a better life? Aren't you guys tired of looking behind your back? And, and they respect that because I'm not trying to force anything down their throat, right? I'm just talking to them like if I was their dad. 
You know, and that's always the first thing that I tell them. I said, all of you here to be my children, and I'm coming here to speak to you with respect, like a father. Not like an authority figure, not like somebody who's trying to challenge you. I'm coming to you guys like a dad, because I love you guys, and I want to see you guys do better. And that's how I always open up the conversation. What do you tell parents who want to prevent their children from joining gangs? I tell them to listen to their children. Um, I tell them to monitor and spend time with their kids. I, I've always told parents, they're like, oh, but it's an invasion of their privacy for me to look into their book bags. And no, it's not. Because the parent is the one that bought that. It's under their parents' roof. It's okay for a parent to sit down. And instead of saying, yo, give me your notebook so I can look at it, they say, oh, let me see what you're going to do today. Or something like that. And to review, I think, you know, what it is is that parents are so busy. Because in this city, in this age, you have to have like two or three jobs in order to survive, right? So these poor parents, like, they're exhausted. They don't have the time. But I'm telling them, you better have the time. All it takes is a few minutes, man, for a parent to check in on their kids. You know, all it takes is a few minutes to sit down at a dinner table with their kids and talk about how their day was. 99% of the time when a kid, you know, you talk to these kids, they'll tell you that the reason why they joined is because they wanted a family. When they have a family at home, right? That's all they want. They want somebody to listen to them, to love them, and to mentor them. So that's all it is. I, I tell parents that, just listen. Sometimes parents got to do a lot less talking and a lot more listening to their babies. Because remember this, and you can quote me on this, this is one of my, the quotes I use all the time. My students are tired of hearing it, but I love to say it. Every behavior and every action has a message behind it. They'll be sending messages way before they step in to a gang. How many kids would you say you have helped release from their gang affiliations? Oh, oh my God. I would say, honestly, in the last 30 years, I would say over 3,000 maybe or more. And remember, in that you have to include the family too. Wow. I never even really sat there and thought about that. Thank you. Wow. You just made me smile. Wow. Wow. I'm just thinking about the wow. Okay. I'm getting a little emotional. I don't like getting emotional. It's a relief to know that God created someone like Dr. Jimenez to make a way for children, families, and communities to be liberated and restored from the torment of gangs. Dr. Jimenez's unconditional and infinite service to the youth is making a difference in your life and in your community. Whether you're in Staten Island or Puerto Rico, Brooklyn or the Bronx, Honduras or Pennsylvania, Dr. Jimenez is out there, in our streets, saving children, one at a time. It's a blessing to know that Dr. Jimenez is willing to go beyond just giving kids a second chance. He offers them guidance, relationship with no judgment, financial support for them and their family. He does a lot. Just one person has made all this impact. This is a great moment to remind us of the impact we can have as a collective. God saved thousands of lives through Dr. Jimenez. Imagine how much more God can do through us if we choose to support and partner with others in their mission. Yes, I will confess that I would love for you to support Dr. Jimenez's mission. 
but ultimately i just want to encourage you to be intentional about supporting someone or something that's greater than you no matter what the cause is do it remember we would love to hear from you in the comments or if you're tuning in on spotify interact with us via the question and poll linked to every episode Make sure you don't miss the last episode coming up next.